<laughs> wow, what a day. I feel full already. Don't you? It's fantastic. So, let's have a little think here. I've got one or two things to move around. Get this little magic thingy here. Put that in there. So today's passage is Luke 2020. So we're going to be looking at a passage, Luke 2020, in the year 2020. It seemed appropriate that this would be Vision Sunday. Because we've got 2020 vision when the Lord is working in our lives, obviously. And this particular passage, the passage that's already been introduced to us so, so beautifully, is a passage that in the end, when you have dug beneath the surface, is a passage that addresses the question, what and for whom have you been made? What or for whom have you been made? Let's read from Luke chapter 20, verse 20. Keeping a close watch on Jesus, they sent spies who pretended to be honest. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. So the spies questioned him. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right and that you do not show partiality but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? He saw through their duplicity and said to them, show me a denarius whose portrait and inscription are on it. Caesar's, they replied. He said to them, then give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. They were unable to trap him in what he had said there in public and astonished by his answer. They became silent. Now it's quite important that we kind of get an idea of what this is all about. It's obviously something that related very specifically to the people of Jesus' time. Taxation, like now, was common to everybody. The thing about taxation then, however, was that the conquered people groups of the Roman Empire were forced to pay for their conquest. The way that it worked was that some great general, in the case of Israel, the general Pompey, who with Julius Caesar, who largely conquered Europe, and Crassus, who was not a general, but an incredibly rich man, undoubtedly the richest man of his day, and maybe one of the richest men of all time. They formed what was called the Triumvirate, and they oversaw the development of the early stages of the Roman Empire. And the, the genius method that they came up with was this. They would sell shares in the conquest of the people groups of the world. Crassus would fund the campaign. He would fund the campaign of Julius Caesar to the Gauls. He would fund the campaign of Pompey to crush 
the, the opposition in Egypt and then through the Holy Land. And he would be, if you like, the cornerstone investor in this enterprise. And he would go to other wealthy families in Rome, members of the Senate, people who were part of the Roman elite, and offer them an opportunity to support the campaign. Now, of course, if Rome failed, then it wouldn't really be a great investment. But up until this point, and for many hundreds of years, Rome didn't really ever fail in military enterprises. And the way that they were going to fund the return on the investment was to tax the conquered people. There's a kind of evil genius about that, isn't there? And so when people speak about the tax collectors like Zacchaeus, when we think about the taxation that the people, the people were under at the time, it may not have been particularly onerous, but because it was funding their own conquest, it seemed to be just a terrible thing. Such an ignominious way of proving to you that you had no capacity to protect yourself. And so for that reason, taxation by Rome of the people of Israel was deeply despised and hated. So that's the first thing to know about the passage. The second thing to know is the spies, the, the people that came to Jesus to try to catch him out, were trying to do exactly the same thing that Jesus did at the beginning of the chapter. Do you remember when, at the beginning of the chapter, the, the Pharisees, the religious elite, and various others came to Jesus and, um, and said, by what authority are you doing these things? He'd just turned over the tables in, in the temple. He was, he was really causing a bit of consternation to those who were in charge. And he says, I'll answer your question if you answer me this question. John's baptism, was it from God or was it from man? Now he was placing them in an invidious position because they knew that if they said it was from God, then Jesus would be able to say, well, why didn't you get baptized? And if they say it was from man, then the people would hear that and would chase them and beat them and maybe even stone them. And so they were afraid of the people and didn't want to go in either of those directions and so simply said, we don't know. Now, I don't know whether they got back together again after that little uh, escapade and uh, thought to themselves, that Jesus is pretty smart, but he can't be smarter than us. I mean, after all, we've been to synagogue school, we've been to Temple University, I mean, we've done the whole deal. We've got to be smarter than him. We must be able to do the same thing to him that he did to us. So let's go and ask him a similar kind of question. Because if he says, don't pay taxes, then we can hand him over to the Romans. And if he says, do pay taxes, we can stir up the crowd against him. And so Jesus asks for a coin. And this is where everything changes and everything turns. And this is where we begin to introduce why it is that Laurie Zastro is on the stage today. There she is. 
She is, uh, along with several others, we have a group of ceramicists in the congregation. Who knew? Laurie is a potter, and um, she's going to be helping us understand what it was that Jesus was talking about, because he took a coin, but very quickly, the conversation became a conversation about clay. You see, Jesus used two particular words when he asked the question of the spies that had been sent to him. He said, show me a coin. They gave him a denarius. He said, whose icon is this? And whose epigraph is this? We translate it, whose image, whose face, whose name, what date. And so Jesus takes the coin and, of course, recalls the fact that currency within historical time had only recently been invented by people like King Croesus of Lydia, who had so much gold and silver that they needed to somehow find a way of getting it out in the hands of other people because they just didn't have enough room in their storehouses. And so they created coins with their face and name on it to indicate their ownership, but they allowed it to be distributed amongst the people as a means of exchange. Well, that same idea was used in Rome particularly by the generals as they returned home from campaign, and they would throw coins into the crowd that, that, that memorialized their victory, and, and there gave an image and an indication of ownership. And these became the currency that today we now understand as money. The image and the name indicate ownership. And Jesus says, it's owned by Caesar, give it to Caesar. But you see, he was speaking to a Jewish crowd. And image and name were enormously important to their spiritual tradition and their religious heritage. There wouldn't be a person in that crowd who would not understand what it was that Jesus was saying. At the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 2, it is described there how God made Adam from the dust of the earth. He gathers the dust and forms a man in his image. Literally, with the imprint of himself upon him. The imprint of himself upon him. Now this idea, this idea of image and being image bearers indicates that, that God has made us for himself. From the very beginning, God intended that we would be close to him. Maybe the picture that was in the mind of the first readers of this text was that, was that a human being formed out of clay would have the handprint of almighty God upon them. And that that handprint would always be filled by the hand who made it. 
so that we would never be more than an arm's length away from the Lord, so that we'd always be connected, that we'd always be communicating. Of course, after chapter two, where Adam is made, Adam and Eve pull away from that hand, and all of human history is defined by the emptiness left by a hand that no longer fills the imprint, by an image that is no longer filled by the one who created that image. All of human history, all of human experience is defined by the void left behind, by the hand that no longer rests upon human lives. And as God calls humans back to himself, he calls them back to come into arm's length, to come into connection. He fills the now distorted image, image that has now been twisted and turned by the vicissitudes of life, by, by the waywardness of humanity. And so God does something remarkable. He decides in that first man and woman who are drawn back into covenant relationship, he decides to give them a portion of his name. That's how you write the name of God in Hebrew, transliterated into English. Yahweh. We put the... Uh, we put the vowels in and it becomes Yahweh or maybe Yehovah. Abraham gets one of the Hays and becomes Abraham. Exalted father becomes the father of many nations. Sarai gets the other Hay and becomes Sarah. Still a princess, but now a princess of heaven. God gives to the first father and mother of the people of God his name. And so when Jesus says, whose image and name is this? Well, give to them what is theirs and give to God what is his. What do you think the people thought? They knew what he was talking about. They knew that he was saying, there is an image upon you. They knew that what he was saying was that there's a name that is upon you. You see, we've had to go from currency to clay, from coins to containers. Because as the Bible unfolds, so this image returns over and over again. Isaiah 29, Jeremiah 19. We see it in Romans 9. We see it in Ephesians 2. We see it in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We see it over and over and over again. The idea that we have been formed by God on the wheel of the potter. And in his hands, he has made us and left his image upon us. And his name 
inscribed into the very fabric of our being. And as such, we are made for someone and made for something. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, I'll, I'll read it to you. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, there is a very clear explanation of this process in our lives. It's quite obvious what it is that Paul is revealing to us. He says this, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Here's the amazing thing. When we bow the knee to Christ, when we surrender to the Lordship of Jesus, a new creation begins. It's all the way through the New Testament. And that new creation is the workmanship of God. And that new creation means that there is a fresh revelation of the image of the one who made us and a fresh revelation of our purpose. We have been created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared in advance for us to do. So what are these good works? What, what would these good works look like? Well, it's fairly straightforward. Those of you who've come across the teaching here at Apex would know that, of course, for each of us, there is the simple call to live an upward life towards the Father, an inward life towards the covenant community of God's people, an outward life towards those who are lost, those who are least, those who are last in society. The simple purpose of the pot in God's hands is to emulate and imitate the life of Jesus who lived this three-dimensional lifestyle, this up-in-out lifestyle perfectly among us to reveal to us how we're supposed to go, how we're supposed to live, what we're supposed to do. Individually, it's clear that there is a general purpose. And, and in previous weeks, we've looked at specific purposes, the way in the rest of Ephesians, the way in which our specific purpose is unfolded to us as we allow the work of the Spirit and the work of grace to interact with us through other believers. We found ourselves understanding the specific call and task of our life. But the general call is not different for any of us. We, we emulate the life of Jesus. We live the three-dimensional lifestyle. We live in such a way that our life becomes marked by a particular way of giving. 
I'm not going to be able to wear the seersucker after Labor Day, so I thought I'd wear it today. Being a South Carolinian, I know that you're not allowed to wear it after Labor Day. Sally and I became Americans in South Carolina. That's, uh, that's why we're South Carolinians. The English accent's only my preaching voice. About 40 years ago, I was walking with Sally through a street market in London in a little community called Camden, Camden Town. And there the vendors would be shouting to us in their Cockney accents, All right, mate, come and get it. Oh, give me a fiver for it. I mean, if you don't know what they're talking about, it's like a completely foreign language. One particular table was displaying some antique presses. And I found an S and the image of a young woman reading a book. Sally's read every book there is in the universe. And so I thought it was appropriate that I would buy her these two things. And um, it's, it's kind of apposite for today, really, because this pot that was thrown by Laurie earlier is what they call a leather pot. I don't know whether it's right or not. That's what she told me. She's the expert. And when the pot is in this state, you can impress it with something. And I'm always looking to impress somebody sometime. <laughs> so I thought I'd have a go. And apparently what you do is you just find the spot that you want. And then you just press. And there it is. Rather beautiful. And just to indicate who the bearer of this impression is. We can press with that letter. Very hard for you to see. You can come and see it later if you want. This, this is just like you and me. In fact, I'll put it there, look. This is like you and me, individually and collectively. You see, individually, you and I have a destiny. You and I have a purpose. You and I have a calling. You and I are owned by somebody for something. And God is looking to fulfill that in us. It's not going to be achieved by human striving. It's not going to be achieved by dint of will. It's going to be achieved by God's grace flowing through us cracked and broken vessels. But God will do it anyway. It's true of us individually, but it's also true of us collectively. What has Apex been made for? What has 
apex, been designed for. When God decided to call into being, and by the way, that's where the word ecclesia from which we get church comes from. When God called into being a church called Apex and gave it that name and gave it that collective identity, what was it that he called it into being for? Well, the way that we've understood it down through the years, and I say we down through the years because I see myself as part of that same tradition, if you like, tradition in the best possible way. We've seen it as to gather, to grow, and to go. There's an up and out to the life of Apex. We gather in-house and online. We grow by learning what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, finding the right context for that discipleship to flourish and, and, and bear fruit. And so often that is the house church or the household. And we learn what it means as we gather and grow, what it means to be people who go to the lost, to the least and the last, to those who are found on the very margins of what we would understand society to be, who are lost in darkness because they've not seen the light of the glory of Christ. So Apex has a very clear identity. It's been made for something because it's been made for someone and he's called it into being. And every year, we have to come to the point, probably about this time in the year, because everything seems to be defined by the academic year, even when kids don't go back to school. It's funny, isn't it? Around about this time in the year, it's time for us to reassess and think again. What would it, like, what would it be like to gather in this time? Well, of course, I think we may even have some slides to this effect. To gather in this time means to do it in a way that we've never done it before. And so we, we think about how it is that we might gather in-house and online finding ways for high-tech to become high-touch because so often high-tech indicates low-touch. We're finding ways to, to manage this terrible ordeal that the world has been placed under with appropriate ways of gathering in-house and and vital ways of connecting online. And so I encourage you, if you're there at home right now, try not to multitask. Don't be using your computer and your phone at the same time. Unless, of course, you're just 
checking the verses out that I'm referring to. Don't ask Google stuff. You can ask him later, or her. I don't know what gender Google is. But, um, but try not to multitask, because it's really easy, isn't it, when we're doing the thing that we do with the screen to do the thing that we always do with the screen, and we're, we kind of get stuck. So maybe one of the things that we can do, and this would take us into the tradition of the church, maybe we can do things like, maybe we should light a candle if we're at home to give us focus, to give us a symbol, to give us a sense that this is a time of worship. I'm lighting this tea light beside the computer just so that I am saying this is a special time for me to be in the light of Christ. People have done these things down through the centuries and it's not because they're wicked that they did them. They did it because they were smart. And so we'll find ways and we'll, we'll look for ways for Apex Delivers to maybe encourage all of that. And then of course, in the growing side, the, the, the Delivers is enormously important because as we learn to do this, we're learning to do something really important. Of course, we are gathering to, to worship, whether we're in-house or online. And when we seek to grow, we're learning how to walk together. The word for discipleship in the Bible so often, so often leads to the picture of walking. In the Old Testament, people walked with God. Enoch walked with God and was no more. He walked with God right the way through the gates of glory. Imagine that. In the Gospels, the disciples follow Jesus and walk with him. In the rest of the New Testament, the writers of the New Testament encourage us to walk with, in the Spirit, because the Spirit has been given us as our mentor and guide. The Spirit is another counselor, another mentor who, who will take on the work of Jesus in our life so that we become disciples, and we do it most successfully when we do it together. And so when we come together, we walk together. We don't worry together. We don't whine together. We don't do spiritual weight lifting together, demonstrating our Bible muscles. We walk together. We learn how to pace one another, how to prompt one another to good works, how to, how to encourage one another along the way, how to keep one another from falling into the ditch, how to support one another when our ankles turn and our knees become weary. We learn how to encourage one another to rise up on wings like eagles, to walk and not grow weary. This is the very heart of what it means 
to be a disciple. And if as an organism, Apex can find ways of encouraging that, we will. And we've kind of put it under this title of Apex Delivers. Who knows what will unfold as the year continues? And then, of course, we're called to witness. We're called to witness. And so often, it's been the most difficult thing for Christians to do, isn't it? You know, you can feel like you really want to say something, but you don't know how to start, and it's kind of uncomfortable, and, and oh gosh. Have you, ever, have you ever been in that situation, you sit next to somebody on a bus or in a plane, and you're thinking, I, I, ah. and then you say something goofy like, have you ever been washed in the blood of the lamb? <laughs> and they go, uh... I don't think I want that, thank you. Because we're kind of clunky and goofy about it, aren't we? I am, anyway. And so, what we're trying to do, of course, as we, as we go into the going part, is to equip the body, one another, and equip whoever wants to walk with us as a church. Other churches are even now asking us, can we walk with you? So, so we equip one another. So Apex gathers, Apex delivers, Apex equips. Those are the little strap lines, if you like, for this new year. This is a way for us to think about the new year, what it is that God has for us. And already we've begun to unfold it. You see, a vision for a new year should be the worst kept secret in the church. And so Hugh Halter comes and we, we get some equipping and we think, wow, I think I could probably do one of those kinds of gatherings. All I'd need to be is a nice person. And then, and then we have Dale share with us about Discovery Bible study and you, and you think, I mean, is it really that easy? Seriously? I had two people call me before I got home on Sunday last week. How about that? How many of you are praying for your person of peace right now? Put your hand right way up. That's really great. Me too. How many of you have introduced the idea of a discovery Bible study? How many of you, how many of you have done that? One, two, three, four, five, six. Any up there? It's hard to see up there with the lights. Seven. Oh, that little girl always puts her hands up, so that's good. God bless you. How many of anybody got any yeses yet back yet? Anybody got a yes back yet? So we keep praying, don't we? You got one? Yeah, good. So we keep praying. We keep praying for the people of peace. We remember that there's this very simple kind of script that, that doesn't feel clunky at all. I've been looking for someone to study the Bible with. Would, would you like to do that? 
And you remember that there's a power distance between people who have never read the Bible and people like us who have been trained almost to death in the scriptures. And so we only allow ourselves to find what's in the text. We never bring information from outside so as to create some kind of information and power distance with the person that we're studying with. Probably the most important revelation that Dale brought to us. But as we do this, we're going to learn. We're going to grow. And when we hear back the first indications of the first fruit, that will be an equipping to us to continue to encourage. I'm going to get so boring asking you about the Discovery Bible Method because I'm just going to keep on asking us about it until we all do it. And what is it then, what is it then that God would achieve through these, through these things? In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, it speaks about what the vessel is going to be used for. It speaks about what the vessel might, might be purposefully doing both at an individual and at a corporate level. It says this in verse 7 of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. Just before we finish, let me tell you why it's so significant that Paul would say jars of clay. He's a Pharisee, remember. He's been raised in a good Jewish home. Did you know that there would be hardly any clay vessels in a religious Jewish home. Do you know why? Because a clay vessel will in some way or another take in what it is that it's, that's inside of it. So if there's water there, it'll seep into the clay. If it's, if it's stew there, it'll seep into the clay. In the Old Testament, it says, when you have clay jars that you're using in worship, make sure you break every one of them because they will be now contaminated for always. And so the clay jar was always an indication of something or someone that would always be contaminated. And so in the home of a Pharisee, the only things that they would use to carry water would be stone jars, like the alabaster jar that was broken over Jesus. These, these alabaster stone containers would never need to be destroyed because they don't take on any of the substance that, is, that has been poured into them. For Paul to say, for Paul to say that we're clay jars says that we're contaminated. But look what he says. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. What treasure is it? For God who said, let there be light, 
to shine in the darkness, made his light to shine in our hearts, to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. When Jesus met a leper, the clean made the unclean clean. The unclean never made the clean unclean. When our clay vessel, the contaminated container of our life, touches light, the darkness within us doesn't make the light dark. The light makes the dark light. When the glory in the face of Christ fills our life, it doesn't make, it doesn't make the glorious inglorious because it's connected to the inglorious within us. The inglorious becomes glorious because of the glory of God. The weakness within us doesn't draw away or detract from the power that is now resident and ours. But the power makes the weak strong. Yes, we are jars of clay. So easily contaminated, so easily influenced, so easily touched by the things that have filled us. Individually and collectively, God will deal with all of it. Because he's faithful and he's able. God is faithful and he's able. He is able to change us. He's able to transform us. He's able to make the darkness light, the inglorious, glorious, the weakness, strength. And he can use your life and mine for his purpose. Something that we could never do. Isn't that amazing? Let's pray together. Lord, we recognize that individually and collectively we are a vessel in your hands. That you have made us for yourself and for your purposes. And Lord, we recognize that the very substance that you choose to work with your hands has been touched by darkness, by the inglorious work of sin, has been touched by the weakness and the frailty of our flesh. And we know, Lord, that we could never be used for your purposes left to ourselves. 
that this church could never be an instrument of transformation in this city and beyond if it was left to us. But Lord, it is your work. It is your treasure. It is the glory in the face of Christ that we recognize this day. And in that recognition, Lord, we recognize that you're faithful and you can do it. And so, Lord, we give you grateful thanks for your grace. Grace that has transformed our destiny, that is forming our present and will define the use that you make of us in the future. We're so grateful for grace, Lord. We surrender again to all that you want to do in and through us. And all God's people, all of Apex, online and in-house, we all say, Amen. Amen.